Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. I saw the Lord standing by the altar, and he said, Strike the tops of the pillars so that the thresholds shake. Bring them down on the heads of all the people. Those who are left I will kill with the sword. Not one will get away. None will escape. Though they dig down to the depths of the grave, from there my hand will take them up. Though they climb up to the heavens, from there I will bring them down. Though they hide themselves on the top of Carmel, there I will hunt them down and seize them. Though they hide from me at the bottom of the sea, there I will command the serpent to bite them. Though they are driven into exile by their enemies, there I will command the sword to slay them. I will fix my eyes upon them for evil and not for good. The Lord, the Lord Almighty, he who touches the earth and it melts, and all who live in it mourn, the whole land rises like the Nile, then sinks like the river of Egypt. He who builds his lofty palace in the heavens and sets its foundation on the earth, who calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out over the face of the land. The Lord is his name. Are are not you Israelites the same to me as the Cushites, declares the Lord? Did I not bring Israel up from Egypt, the Philistines from Camphtur, and the Aramanians from Kerr? Surely the eyes of the sovereign Lord are on the sinful kingdom. I will destroy it from the face of the earth. Yet I will not totally destroy the house of Jacob, declares the Lord. For I will give the command... And I will shake the house of Israel among all the nations as grain is shaken in a sieve, and not a pebble will reach the ground. All the sinners among my people will die by the sword, as those who say, disaster will not overtake or meet us. In that day, I will restore David's fallen tent. I will repair its broken places, restore its ruins, and build it as it used to be, so that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations that bear my name, declares the Lord, who will do these things. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when the reaper will be overtaken by the ploughman and the planter by the one treading grapes. New wine will drip from the mountains and flow from all the hills. I will bring back my exiled people, Israel. They will rebuild the ruined cities and live in them. They will plant vineyards and drink their wine. They will make gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant Israel in their own land, never again to be uprooted from the land I have given them, says the Lord your God. And it will be a great help if you keep your Bibles open at that reading from Amos chapter 9 on page 923 in the church Bibles. And let's pray for God's help as we look at his word together. We've just been singing, no wrath remains for us to face. We're sheltered by your saving grace and sprinkled with your blood. And Father, we thank you so much again tonight for that shelter that your son provides for us. And we pray tonight that as we think about who you are and how you respond to sin... 
Father, please, may we find that shelter to be sweet tonight. And Father, if there are any here tonight who have yet to find that shelter, I pray that they would turn to Christ tonight. And we pray this for your glory. Amen. As the summer holidays began this last week, I found myself thinking back to the good old days when I too was at school and I could also enjoy those blissful months of uh, carefree existence in the summer holidays with no stresses or strains or worries. Um, I know some of you here tonight are enjoying that existence as we speak. Um, I I think back to one summer and and the the greatest stress I could think of, um, the greatest problem was how I could find a way to, at the same time, watch cricket on TV and sunbathe outside. It's actually very difficult. I can speak to you later. I found a way. Um, but, but from this distance, as I think back to all those years ago, it seemed like the perfect blissful experience. I guess the kind of life we all wish we had, day in, day out, carefree, no responsibilities, uh, fear-free. Of course, my guess is that for those who are actually experiencing the summer holidays, it's not quite like that. And of course, the summer holidays only last six or seven weeks, and then it's back to school. And I guess that's what life is like, isn't it? We have that picture of what we wish it was like, that carefree existence. And yet, in reality, we find in life that so often, the further we go through life, the harder it is to be carefree, stress-free, I remember as a teenager, I used to love going on roller coasters. I went to Alton Towers three times in a couple of years. I couldn't get enough of roller coasters. And then one of my friends got stuck on that roller coaster where you hang upside down above a vertical drop. He's there for an hour, dangling. Um, There's a jam in the system. It was terrible. And when I heard about it, well, I haven't gone on a roller coaster since. You see, as we go through life, we start to realize that actually life can be harder than we thought, more complicated, more full of risk. Perhaps we experience our first job and we realize that work is harder than we thought. We experience the first break-in and we start to worry about security. We experience our first accident and we start to worry about travel. We experience our first operation and we start worrying about our health. We buy the dream house and then we start worrying about losing the dream house. We experience our first bereavement and we start to worry about death. We experience our first major mistake and we start to fear failure. We experience rejection, and we start to fear loneliness. You see, we have this picture in our minds of the the world we really want, and yet as we go through life, and we experience life, and the fears and pressures and stress of living in a broken world, we find that it's very hard to find that picture that we long for. And the further we go through life, the more I think we are prone to fear and to worry. We live in a broken world, and I wonder tonight what we fear most. I wonder what you've been dealing with today in your personal lives before coming to church tonight. I wonder what we fear most in life. Tonight we come to the end of our series looking at Amos. Well done if you've uh, survived the course And although the word isn't mentioned in chapter 9 of Amos, I think this final chapter is here to help us know what we should and what we shouldn't fear in this life. 
in this broken world. And it is easy to get it wrong, so very wrong. We, we look, as we look at the people of Israel, we see that they were totally wrong about what, or should I say whom, they should fear most in life. We've seen that Amos is speaking to a people, uh, the people of Israel, who are enjoying economic and social success. And yet we've seen again and again, they are spiritually poor. Their worship is empty. Their love for the Lord is a, a distant memory in the past. And yet all, despite all the warnings from the prophet to repent and to turn around, the people have refused to listen And we see their mindset summarized perfectly for us in the final words the people ever say in the book of Amos. It's there for us at the end of verse 10 of chapter 9. These these are the last words the people say. End of verse 10. After all the warnings from the Lord through his prophet, the people say this. Disaster will not overtake or meet us. That is the final word from a stubborn people. It might well be that these people of Israel experienced the kind of fears we experience about health and houses and holidays. They too lived in a broken world. But the one person that they should have been worrying about most and they were not worrying about, the one person they should have feared was the Lord. And if we look at Amos chapter 9 tonight, we see what God says to a people who have stopped fearing him. And you think that their greatest threats, their greatest fears in life lie somewhere else. So what does God say to a people who think that God is not someone to be feared? We're looking at the first 10 verses. This is our first and longest point. I think God says this. God is more fearsome than you think. God is more fearsome than you think. These verses describe the last and I think the most terrible vision that Amos sees. And it is terrible. It does begin okay at the start of verse 1 when Amos says, I saw the Lord standing by the altar. It's okay so far. It's not very far, but that's okay so far because the altar was where God should have been standing. The altar was a place of sacrifice. It was a place of forgiveness forgiveness. It was the place where a sinful God found the way to live with a, sorry, a holy God found a way to live with a sinful people. And when the temple was working correctly, that's where God should have been dwelling amongst his people. It means relationship. But notice how verse one continues. And the Lord said, strike the tops of the pillars so that the thresholds shake. Bring them down on the heads of all the people Those who are left, I will kill with the sword. No one will get away. None will escape. In other words, the temple and all those who are worshipping there, they are destroyed. And what happens when the temple is destroyed? It means there is now no place to find forgiveness. There is no place for sacrifice. It means there is no relationship now possible between God and a sinful people. And so what happens next in this vision is what must happen when the temple goes, when there is no place for forgiveness. 
and it is a dreadful message. And God says to these hard-hearted people, I am more fearsome than you think. We've heard a lot about judgment in Amos. Uh, Last week we saw that there were various signs of judgment, that there were earthquakes and darkness and uh, thirst and famine. Serious, but in some senses impersonal, general, localized at particular points. But, But here in verse one and throughout the rest of the chapter, judgment is not some general impersonal thing. You see, earthquakes can be deadly, but you can also survive an earthquake if you're lucky. Uh, Famines can be deadly, but if you're lucky, you can survive a famine. But the judgment that that God describes in chapter 9 of Amos is a judgment that no one can escape because it is personal and it is enacted by a personal God. I think I counted 14 times in these first 10 verses where God says, I will do I will carry out, I will instruct, I will order. This is a personal God operating in a personal way to judge people personally. God is more fearsome than you think. Notice how Amos rules out any chance of escape. Um, People try to run away from God, but it doesn't work. Verse two, though they dig down to the depths below, from there my hand will take them. Though they climb up to the heavens above, from there I will bring them down. Again, verse 3, people climb the highest mountain or they go down to the bottom of the sea. And yet there is no escape from this God. God is far more fearsome than you think. Or what about politics? Uh, Verse 4. Though you are driven into exile by their enemies, there I will command the sword to slay them. I will keep my eye on them for harm and not for good. I think that verse means that the people are thinking, well, okay, um, exile, that's not great. We wouldn't choose exile, but, but it's not that bad. We'll go to a foreign land for a little while. We'll, we'll, kind of, we'll make some money and we'll, we'll survive. Then we'll, we'll come back to the promised land. Um, we managed that before back in Egypt, we managed to come out of Egypt okay. So exile, it's not great, but we'll make it. No, says the Lord, because in exile, that is where I will strike you down, says the Lord. So to a hard-hearted people who say the Lord will not, God says, I am more fearsome than you think. When I was about uh, four or five, I can't quite remember, some family friends had a black Labrador uh, called Spice. And um, I was quite scared of Spice because um, I was only a little chap and uh, Spice was quite a large Labrador and uh, he's very vigorous. And when you walked into the front door, he'd come running up and his head was at my head level and he was all slobbery and licky. He used to cover my face in slobber, which I didn't like. And then he'd turn around and head off and as he turned around, his tail would sort of smashy back and forth in, in, I was short and it hit my face um, so I, I didn't like spice I was kind of scared of spice um, but of course over the years um, spice didn't get any bigger and I did get bigger well a bit bigger um, I got a bit taller um, and after a while I, didn't, I wasn't scared of spice because spice's tail hit my knees not my face and his slobber got to my knees not my face and so after a while I thought well spice is not something to be scared about in other words I grew up And I think, if you forgive the reference, that is what the people of Israel had 
done with God. They had domesticated him. Yes, there had been a season in their past when they had been up against it. There had been wars and persecution. They had experienced famine and drought. But just recently, they had found a way to achieve economic prosperity. They were at peace with their enemies. Uh, the rich were getting richer. They could build their second home, the loft conversion. In other words, they had grown up as a nation. They were describing themselves as notable men, remember, of the foremost nation. And as they grew up in their perception, so God got smaller. And now they felt as if they could look down on God and control him as one would control a pet. And so when this pet says, I'm going to come and get you, they went, don't worry about it. We've grown up. We've arrived. We can handle it. God is more fearsome than you think. And notice how we see this, verse five. The Lord, the Lord Almighty, he touches the earth and it melts and all who live in it mourn. The whole land rises like the Nile and sinks like the river of Egypt. He builds his lofty palace in the heavens and sets its foundations on the earth. He he calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out over the face of the land. The Lord is his name. In other words, there's nothing bigger in this creation than the creator. The Lord made everything we can see, including us. He towers over everything. He sits in glory and splendor, looking down on the earth from heaven. And so it's utter foolishness to think that we can somehow grow up and compete with God. I have this image in my mind of a little child playing hide-and-seek. And you know how little children play hide-and-seek? They don't play it very well. Instead of running off to a really clever hiding place somewhere up in the attic, they tend to sit down in the middle of the dining room floor and cover their eyes. Because they think that when they can't see you, you can't see them. And so they're sitting there with their eyes covered, thinking they're safe. They're hiding. That's what little children do. And in a sense, that is what Israel is trying to do before this awesome and mighty God. They're trying to play a game of hide and seek. Oh, we can run somewhere. We can sort it out. We can find a way of hiding. It'll be okay. We're not quite sure how, but it'll be fine. And they're sort of covering their eyes before God. And God says, I see you. I made you. I'm your creator. I made every single nook and cranny on the face of this earth. You can't hide anywhere that I don't know about. And just as it is... Well, it's laughable, but not successful when a child hides that way. So it is sad when we try to hide that way before God. God is more fearsome than you think. And in verse 7, Amos takes away the final hope that I think the people might have been clinging to. Their history won't save them either. You see, in the past, and Israel knew this, in the past, God had saved them from Egypt through that mighty exodus. And in doing so, he showed that he loved them, particularly out of all the nations. And I think that the Israelites were going, well, well, God must love us because of the exodus. So he's not going to turn around and now judge us because we're one of his chosen people. He wouldn't now undermine that great act of rescue. But not so, says the Lord. Israel, you are no longer special in God's eyes. In fact, it is not hard for God to move nations around. 
He can move the Philistines from Kafta and the Arameans from Ker. It's not hard for the creator God to control his creation. And so Israel, don't think you're anything special because he happened to move you from Egypt to the promised land. You're not. In other words, don't use the Exodus as some bargaining chip. That means that God has to rescue you. It won't work that way. For a hard-hearted people, you can't use history that way. And so verse 8, we have the terrible conclusion. Surely the eyes of the sovereign Lord are on the sinful kingdom. The Lord says, I will destroy it from the face of the earth. Life can be difficult. As we go through more of life in this broken world, we will experience, I guess, new and difficult challenges and fears. But nothing compares with the threat from this God. He is the one who we should fear above all things. God is more fearsome than you think. It was true for Israel then, and it is true for us today. People today find all kinds of ways to wriggle out of facing with the enormity of an awesome God who will judge sin. I don't know, you've heard various things. People say things like, well, for me, I don't believe in a God like that. I don't believe in a God who judges. That's, that's, that's how I feel. But personal opinion won't save us from this God. Or, or, or people say, well, I'm a good person. Surely in the final analysis, God will, will like me. He'll, he'll let me off. But God sees everything. He is the creator looking down. He doesn't see just the public face that we let others see. He sees every thought and every action we do behind closed doors. Or people might say, well, I'm British. I have a Christian heritage. I I come from the right country. That must be worth something. And no, it's not before this God. Or people might say simply, look at how good my life is now. Look, it's not perfect, it's not completely sorted, but it's good enough. Uh, There might be a God there somewhere, but it's too much hassle thinking about him now. I'd much prefer to focus my energies on keeping my life as good as I can in the present. So please stop talking to me about this kind of God. Such a short-sighted way of running our life because God is more fearsome than we think. And so as Amos draws to a close of his remarkable book, what hope do we have as we face this fearsome God? If we believe the prophet at all, if we trust his words, then every sinner deserves judgment and the Lord knows about every sinner. Well, as we come to the end of this book, there is one glimmer of hope. Uh, It begins at the end of verse eight. You can almost miss it as it begins, but it is there. Look with me at the end of verse eight. The Lord says, I will destroy it from the face of the earth, yet I will not totally destroy the house of Jacob, declares the Lord. And he goes on to describe a shaking and a sifting that will take place amongst this people. 
and there'll be a separation. There'll be two kinds of people. There'll be, if you like, a pebble who is, that's left in the sieve. That is the person who's persistently, hard-heartedly refusing to repent. That is what the pebble means in this context. But there will be people who do get through the sieve. And we're not quite told who these are, but I think we can tell these people are those who take the warning seriously and they go, yes, I am someone who deserves judgment. Yes, I have wronged the Lord. Yes, I am out of kilter with him. Yes, I've lived my life against him. And yes, this judgment will come to me. And for that person, there is hope. Because Amos then goes on to describe in the last six verses what that second person can expect from the Lord in the future. The pebbles, if you like, will remain in judgment, but those who pass through will face this wonderful future. So what can this second group of people expect in the future? Those who say, yes, I do deserve judgment. Yes, I should be fearful of this awesome God. What can this second group expect? Well, here's our second and much more quickly, our second point. For those people who are fearing the Lord, Amos says, God is more faithful than you fear. We've seen God is more awesome than you think. Secondly, God is more faithful than you fear. Verse 11. In that day, I will restore David's fallen shelter. I will repair its broken walls and restore its ruins and will rebuild it as it used to be. It's a picture of a, of a restored people, a people living in a restored city. One of the great promises of the Old Testament was that God would keep a descendant of the great King David on the throne forever, that his line would never pass away. And here the Lord says that he will restore David's fallen shelter, uh, not so much his house, but a flimsy shelter. That's all that's left. God will restore And so for people who are, I guess, quaking in their boots at the thought of God's judgment, who are fearing the Lord, Amos says, God is more faithful than you fear. He will do this. He will restore his people. Those who are fearing him now will experience his mercy and his grace. What about us here tonight? My guess is most of us are not from the house of David. We're not Jews. So how do we fit into this promise? Well, verse 12 tells us, so that they may, be, may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations that bear my name. Amos is talking about something far more wonderful than just Israel being restored. He's talking about people from every nation. He's talking about people like us. And seven centuries later, in the New Testament, when the early church is having a very important debate about who can be brought into God's people, In Acts 15, they're talking about how Gentiles should enter this new community of faith. There's a very important discussion. And at the heart of that discussion comes Amos chapter 9. James quotes it as he's trying to defend the right of Gentiles to be brought into God's new people. And he says, look, it's always been part of God's plan. He's always said the Gentiles have a place in this promise. Look, Amos 9 says so. And he quotes verses 11 and 12 of Amos. Go check it out later, Acts 15. In Acts, how does salvation happen? Not through a military campaign, not through violence and warfare and swords and guns, but through a gospel mission. 
It's as the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ is proclaimed to all nations, so people like us are able to be brought in to this rebuilt people. As people hear about that one true sacrifice, sacrifice once for all, that place where relationship is made possible, where the sins of the world are poured onto the one perfect man. As people hear about that once and for all sacrifice, so they find rescue from a God who comes to judge. And so God says to these people listening to Amos, who I guess are quaking in their boots, he says, God is more faithful than you fear. And he says the same to us tonight. If we have been cut by these words of judgment, if we do feel that they are right and true, then God says, fear not. There is a way. I will be faithful to it. But notice this rebuilding is not just spiritual, it is also physical. Uh, Look how Amos 9 finishes. Uh, Verse 13 describes a land that's so fertile that the farmer cannot finish one cycle of of harvesting before the next cycle of planting begins. Uh, And it's so fertile that the the mountains, the hills, drip with wine. There is a superabundance of goodness coming from the land. Verse 14, the exiles return and they find a lush garden, a land of plenty, a land that will never spoil again. It is a world, to borrow a phrase, that we all would want. But it is not a world that we yet see. Remember back in Genesis 1, when God created the world, do you remember how he described his handiwork again and again? He said, it was good. It is good. It is good. God made a very good world, a world of beauty, a world of abundant provision. And yet we also know from Genesis 3 that that world has been marred. It is now groaning. It is twisted because of sin. And we now live in that twisted, groaning world. That is why we experience fear and anxiety in our life. The world is not how it should be, how it was made to be, and how it one day will be. And these closing few verses from Amos encourage us that one day God will restore the world to be what it should be, a place of blessing, of abundance, where the wine flows, where the ground is fertile, and we can dwell as his people. Think forward to John's gospel as Jesus begins his public ministry. Remember the first miracle he performed? John 2, at a wedding, turning water into wine. We were told it was a sign pointing towards his glory. What was that sign? Well, Amos 9 tells us. You see, it wasn't just a little cup full of wine that the Lord changed from water. It was about a thousand wine bottles worth of wine. It was a, a huge amount, an extravagant amount of wine, wine flowing, if you like, out of the wedding feast. It's a sign telling us that Jesus is the one who is going to bring in this new age of where the world is restored, where wine flows and the land is blessed. And in him holds the key. And because of his life and death, and because he will return, we can look forward to that, a world perfected. And there will be a, a wedding banquet in the future where we all gather around the throne, worshipping the Lamb, 
and there'll be wine, there'll be abundance, there'll be fruit, there'll be a plentiful harvest. And that's when the groaning and the suffering and the fear of this world will be ended. And we will find ourselves in a world that we were made for. And Amos says to her, people quaking in their boots, God is more faithful than you fear. I began by asking you what you fear most in life. I asked you what you've come with tonight, what's on your mind in terms of your own personal fears. We've heard tonight that we should be fearing most of all this awesome creator Lord who will judge. He is the one who is far more fearsome than anything in this world. But I also imagine there'll be other things that we do fear. There'll be operations and poor health and security and loneliness and depression and all the results of fullness. And the wonderful news is tonight that Jesus deals both with the threat of judgment and he also prepares the way for a new creation. And you see how both fears will go, the fear of judgment taken care of and the fear that comes from living in a twisted, broken, wretched world will go as well. What can you say to someone suffering with depression, someone facing an operation, someone facing terrible ill health? What can you say? Well, you can certainly remind them of Amos chapter 9. You can remind them that there will come a day when the faithful Lord will return and we will experience life as we were made to experience it. I wonder if many of us spend the best of our energies fearing that which we need not actually fear in light of eternity, whilst at the same time we spend very little time, very little energy, fearing that which we really should fear. Let's pray for God's help that we may fear rightly. Father, we thank you that you have spoken these words to us because you love us and because you long for us to take shelter in Christ. And Father, please, may we rejoice again tonight for all that Christ has done for us. We thank you that he has taken all the punishment that we deserve on himself. And Father, please help us to trust you for our future in this broken world. Help us to fix our eyes on that wonderful day when Christ returns and we experience that wedding banquet and where the world is put to rights. Father, please keep us until that day. Amen.